0: Uh, Lord, thank you for the words that you've given Gordy today. Um, I pray that we would be able to really hear those words, give us ears to hear, and a mind to understand. Lord, you want us to know you, and we cry out to know you, and to know more of you, and we cry out for your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, Lord, I thank you that you're going to share some of that today with Gordy and through Gordy. And pray you bless him. I pray that you would minister to all the tender spots in Gordy today, even as he speaks, and that he'd be refreshed in the end. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, sir. Good morning. So is it good morning, Lord, or good Lord, it's morning for you? What's, which one? Okay, so I have a little stool here. Let me just get, grab this. This is supposed to be the preaching stool, but it's actually the coffee stool. I'm going to just put this right there. Good. I need the coffee more than I need to sit. All right. Good to see you. Happy Epiphany 5, is it? We're on. Um and uh I know a lot of people kind of let me know they were away today. J- happy birthday to Joanna. She's away celebrating. That doesn't mean that if it's your birthday you can be away, but we're letting her be away, just saying. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. They're troopers, I'll tell ya. So pray for the whole family and that it'll be a good birthday anyway. Um so, we're in this series, as Sandra said, our story's in this story, and I liked what you said about how there's this, often this disconnect, isn't there, between what, how is our story part of God's story? I think that's, that's a, a very important thing to note, that it's not obvious a lot of times um, how our story is in, the, in God's story, and I think that's part of our process, is I think in community, we... We need each other to to see that to see how, see those connections and and I, I think that's like one of the reasons why community is so important. So today, um, just to remind us that we are in this story, the big story of of God, God relentlessly at work to make everything right, and uh, He's chosen not to do that without us. So the double negative means He's. He's chosen to do it with us. Um, but I like to say it the negative way because, because I think that emphasis, that emphasis is needed, that double underline. He has chosen not to do it without us. And the scandal and the risk that that entails, it is messy sometimes. And it's messy because God has to clean up our messes. But thankfully, he won't do that without us either. He involves us in that. Process of cleaning up our own messes together, and um, not only is it is it risk for God, but we need to understand that this process of God making everything right, having a beautiful conversation with our newest homestay daughter, yesterday, uh, Sophia from Italy, and uh, uh, was t- you know wondering where we go when we die. So I said, well, there's probably a temporary place, but you need to know we're all going to end up here. That's the story. We forget that, don't we? Hmm? Heaven's going to kiss earth. Heaven's going to marry earth. And, and uh, so that story is taking us there. God is making everything right. And God has chosen not to do that by coercion, by force, by uh, colonialism. God has chosen to do that by sacrifice, humility, servanthood, the way of the cross, right? So in that light, I'd like to tell you a parable called the rabbi and the fugitive. Many of you have heard it because I've quoted it before. But I feel in the times that we are, this parable is so important. As we look at our text today in a minute from the book of Matthew, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, And we're going through today the story, that famous metaphor, where Jesus describes who we are with a metaphor of salt and light. And then he ends with a a, kind of a strange side note, it almost seems, about our our goodness needs to be better than the, the best people that were on earth, and that was regarded by the Jews as the Pharisees, that ours needs to surpass that. And... So what's this salt and light business about? And to help us understand that, I I want to introduce what I think is a tension that we have in salt and light. I think the the metaphor of salt and light that he, well known to most of us in the Sermon on the Mount, introduces a tension that we have to deal with our whole life. And I think this tension is beautifully illustrated by this story that Henry now and I first uh, read, uh, tell the story, where in his book, The Wounded Healer, he quotes it, and it's actually a rabbinic uh, parable. And it's the story of a young fugitive who was trying to hide himself from the enemy who was pursuing him. And he entered a small village. The people were kind to him and offered him a place to stay. But when the soldiers who sought the fugitive asked where he was hiding, everyone became very fearful. The soldiers threatened to burn the village and kill every person in it, unless the young man was handed over to them before dawn. So the people went to the rabbi in the village, and they asked him what to do. Torn between handing the boy over to the soldiers and having... Having his whole community killed, the rabbi withdrew to his room and read his Bible, hoping to find an answer before dawn. In the early morning, his eyes fell on these words, It is better that one man dies than the whole people be lost. The rabbi closed his Bible. He called the soldiers and he told them where the boy was hidden. And after the soldiers led the fugitive away to be killed, there was a feast in the village because the rabbi had saved the lives of the people. But the rabbi did not celebrate. Overcome with deep sadness, he remained in his room. That night an angel came to him and asked him, what have you done? He said, I handed over the fugitive to the enemy. Then the angel said, but don't you know you have handed over the Messiah? And the rabbi said, how could I know? Then the angel said, if instead of reading your Bible, you had visited this young man just once and looked into his eyes, you would have known. I heard that story 15 to 20 years ago, and it has been formative for me in my life and ministry because it introduces this tension of getting it right versus being good. And it tells me that truth can never be separated from being incarnational. It doesn't mean the Bible isn't important, but you can never separate it from looking into the eyes of the fugitive and being present. So what I want to talk about today is the cost of being faithfully present, even when sometimes we don't get it right. And so Jesus introduces this... uh, parable by saying you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot now one of the problems we have reading our bibles these days is we read them through our western individualized eyes And we forget that most of the New Testament, including the Gospels, were written to communities. The epistles were written to communities. So when the word you is used, often we interpret that as me. But actually, if Jesus were Texan, he'd say this. Y'all are the light light of the world, right? A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the, in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in, in heaven. Now, this seems like an abject contradiction to something Jesus had just said a few verses before, or, or sorry, a few verses later. Remember a few verses later, he says, oh, by the way, when you do your deeds, don't do them so, so you can be noticed by everybody, but do it. In, so what's, what, what, what's going on? Well, remember, there's this tension between the community and individuals, and also there is this, there's this aspect in this particular context of being present, being a community that's present. Jesus, calling, he's on the line. All right, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, or that word is fulfilled. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments, what's he talking about? Talking about his, he's just giving a new Torah, isn't he? That's the Sermon on the Mount. And teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's he getting at here? So remember, you are the salt of the earth. The Texan is y'all. Okay? Y'all are the salt of the earth. This is plural. You are the light of the world. You're all the light of the world. So this is a corporate word. What he's doing is he's speaking to us as a community. He's telling us who we are. Last week we talked briefly about this, that there's often common metaphors that we appeal to. And I think this, this, these metaphors of salt and light are so informative for what God's heart for us as a church is. Remember last week we talked about sometimes we, we, our, our metaphors were people in exile. And we have this view like Israel being in Babylon. Remember when they were taken into captivity. And we kind of see ourselves like that in the world. We feel like we don't belong. That somehow we're in survival mode. That we're trying to survive till Jesus comes again. And... Uh, it's it's all our focus is on survival, and uh, we're under siege. You know, uh, waiting for deliverance. We're this persecuted minority, and that that's there is some truth to that. And those those metaphors are sometimes referred to in scripture. Peter Peter talks about being in exile, scattered. So it's not it's not an um, a wrong metaphor, but I think it's incomplete. I think it's incomplete. The second metaphor we talked about last week that we all like to refer to is war. We're in a war. We're in this fight against evil. And there's there's bad guys out there, and there's a bad devil out there, and and there's winners and losers. And and so we, as Christians, we take this posture of being known more for what we're against then what we're for. And so again, there is an element of warfare that you do see in Scripture. Paul, at the, after a lot of other stuff he talks about, at the end of, of Ephesians, talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but even the weapons we use are not the same. We use love to overcome hate. We use good to overcome evil. We use gentleness to overcome violence. Um, So again, it's not wrong. This isn't a wrong metaphor. We are in a fight, but perhaps my biggest fight is against myself and my own false selves and need for approval or recognition or achievement to get my own identity rather than just trusting that I'm a beloved child of God. That's where a lot of the battle for me is. And to be non-anxious and secure in that love So I think biblical language for war is is appropriate. But I think that salt and light tell us that the most defining metaphor of how we are in the world as a community is to be a faithful presence in the world. And that's what salt and light, that's what Jesus is saying, I believe, through salt and light. But faithful presence, that introduces a, A real big tension because we tend as the church to have either been faithful but not present. You know, we're gonna be obedient and faithful to God and live, follow Jesus, but we'll just set up a monastery somewhere way out, and there's nothing wrong with monasteries. In fact, Benedict's monasteries were very, very present, but you know what I mean, kind of cloistered, kind of away from society and. You don't need a monastery to do that. It can be an attitude. We're separate from the world, right? So this kind of focus on separation. So we're we're faithful, but there's no presence. There's no light. Or the other problem is we've been present, but not faithful. There's no difference between us and the world. We just kind of blend right in. The divorce rates are the same. Kirsten's been telling how the, the rates of sexual abuse in Christian organizations is no different than secular. That's being present, but not faithful, Right? Extreme examples, but there's a lot less extreme examples all over the place of that, where we just don't look any different than the world. We're just as worried as them. We're just as frazzled as them. We're just as burnt out as them. You know, wh- where's the distinction? So how can we be both faithful and present? That is the tension. Because often when we engage and we're present, we become influenced rather than the influencers, Right? So what makes us distinctive? I think it's important to talk about this, because often, you know, we got that wrong. You know, and and maybe it was partly because of the way it all started. I mean, when God called Abraham, there were some distinctives, you know, circumcision, thank God that's over, speaking as a guy. Um, But, you know, food laws, you know, we don't eat shellfish and we don't eat pork and bacon and in the way we dress, and the way we have... It, so that we're different. We're distinctive. Well, of course, the New Covenant introduced a better way. It starts from the inside out. But even that, we had trouble through church history. Some of our distinctives... I mean, I grew up with distinctions. And you know, you know what the difference for me as a, between a Christian and a non-Christian when I was growing up? First of all, if you're a woman and you wore makeup, you're not a Christian. And if you wore earrings, you're not a Christian. If you're a guy, if you smoke cigarettes... You're definitely not a Christian. And if you go to movies, oh, you're not a Christian, right? If you you had a beer, you enjoyed a beer every Friday night, sorry, you're out. Yeah, so that's kind of what I grew up with. And um, I mean, there was a little bit of touch on other things, inner inner character and dealing with sins and things like that, but so much of my upbringing was, was based on externals. How about you? And did I miss anything? Dancing. Oh, dancing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Floor, yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, uh, and and my favorite my favorite joke about that is why didn't we believe in sex? Cuz it might lead to dancing. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Ah. Uh, any other any other uh Painful <laughs> histories here. Oh, rock music. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was of the devil. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, the music thing. Oh, my goodness. Huh? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about the cards. TV, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So t- uh uh, uh the, s- the story we're now hearing from the floor is I'm so glad I wasn't raised in North America. That's Lynn. <laughs> oh, what the Lord delivered you from. Uh speaking in tongues. Oh, interesting. That was the devil. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. So we we you know and the list goes on. So so uh there is a clue, I think, when Jesus, he, he, he finishes the salt and light metaphors, and then he says this, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, to fulfill, but to fulfill them. So the, the Jewish uh, Christians believed, and Matthew was the author of this, this Sermon on the Mount, or he transcribed it, believed that there was a new Torah that Jesus was introducing with the Sermon on the Mount, and then there was five other t- five other narratives through the book of Matthew, where Jesus speaks like this. Maybe not quite as long, but uh, you know, there's there's another one in, in Matthew 13 where he, it's on the parables. There's another one about you know uh, sin and repentance and making sure you don't offend children and and forgiveness and and then his you know his his Olivet discourse about the end times. So they they saw Jesus as the new Moses. Jesus was, was introducing a new Torah and these commandments. So he says, I have, but he says, I want you to know my relationship to the law and the prophets. He says, that's passing away. But I haven't come to discard that. I've come to fulfill it. And the fulfillment of the law, as we learned, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the fulfillment of the law. So, But basically, Jesus was coming to fulfill that in a way that surpassed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What's he saying by that? What he was saying was, is that they got it right, but they got it wrong. They got it right, but they didn't love. They got it right, but they weren't good. They got it right, but they killed the Messiah. They had their scripture down perfect. Their hermeneutics and their exegesis was perfect. And they killed the very Messiah that they were waiting for. So, um, so what is this? What is this distinctiveness? Is it about being right? Or is it about being good? There's a lot of good living people in the world. There's a lot of right living people in the world. So what is the distinctive? Uh, we've all heard the saying, I, you know, we say that about somebody who's not a Christian. They're a way better living person than most Christians I know. We've heard that, right? Well, I think one of the things that comes out is how to fight lovingly in a very polarized and diverse world. I think this is one of the critical things. When Jesus said, by this will all men know you're my disciples. If you love one another. I was reading this morning, In the book of Mark, I don't know how many times he said, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He said the religious elite, the the doctors of theology, the the experts are going to sentence me to death. They're going to reject me. And uh, in the next paragraph, the disciples are, one of them comes up to him, the two brothers come up and say, you know, when you come to your glory, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? And then it says the other guys are all indignant. They're really thrilled about this. And so then he had to call them and say, listen, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And... He pull, I mean he must have been bald by the time he went to the cross. <laughs> Don't you think? Pulling his hair out with these guys. And uh they just didn't get it. And in fact, I was laughing I had to laugh. Sometimes the text just I just crack right up because, because I, I was I was reading this text and and the and and uh and it was James and, James and uh, or J- uh, John and his brother, Andrew, I think it was, who came up, and uh, they, they asked, was it Andrew, James? Oh, John. James and John, yeah. So they came up to Jesus, and then I thought, you know, why would they ask Jesus that? And then I thought, I know why, because they were the first to be picked. Remember, John was the first, one of the first there. So, so there's probably this sense of, you know, I have priority, because I was one of the first in. Jesus, can we grandfather this thing in right now? Right? And so that was the first thing. And then the second thing I thought about was this was the transfiguration, which which uh Sandra's gonna preach on in a few weeks. But it it it's they were up there, right? So James, wasn't it Peter, James, and John were up there watching. So they saw this like laser, zzz, you know, Jesus' eyes blazing, shining like the sun. So that's indelibly imprinted on their mind. And then as they're walking down the hill, he casually says to them, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? He says, "Uh, can you just do me a favor and kind of keep a lid on that until I'm raised from the dead? And and I love it. (laughs) The next verse. So they had a discussion amongst themselves as to what raising from the dead meant. (laughs) Oh my gosh, we haven't changed, have we? We just haven't changed. So, they just didn't get it. So, so they, were, they just didn't get it. In fact, what I really love, one of the Gospels, maybe it's Matthew, tells us that in the upper room, he's, he's breaking bread with them. He's, it's the last supper, dudes. It's the last supper, right? I'm going to die. This is it. My last meal before you, you know, with you before I, I go. And it says a fight broke out amongst them as to who would be the greatest, right in the upper room. So that's why that, you know, if you put the Gospels together, you see this dialogue between uh, the washing of the feet and, and all that that happened in the upper room. They just didn't get it. So this thing of, as opposed to fighting dirty. Now, we have not done this well as Christians. I come from a Huguenot background, which was the French Protestants, There's a mystery about my family upbringing. Why in the world were we German speaking French people who ended up in the US, in Ohio? Why did that happen? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we were running for our lives from other Christians who were trying to kill us. And we found refuge in Germany and we learned German and then we came to the USA. And then I found out this era that where we fled, where we were refugees as Christians, it was other Christians who were trying to kill us, and that went on for a 100 years. It was called the 100-year war between Christians, killing each other, plundering, slaughtering, wiping out villages. Look up St. Bartholomew's Massacre. St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre happened in Paris. And it went both ways. Nobody's, Nobody's exempt to this. Oh, Jesus. We love you. We love you, Lord. We're listening. So, uh, I'm a grandpa, too. I get that. Um, so, so the, you know, the, the religious wars, and, and, you know, I've said this, you've heard me say this before, but what does it tell you that the First and Second World War, which were the two bloodiest wars in human history, were fought between so-called Christian nations? Somewhere, we've got this wrong. How to do this. How to disagree. You're never going to have agreement. I think the essentials are important. But we have just made mountains out of molehills so much through our history. And when are we going to learn? So I say, we haven't done this well. We fought each other. And so Paul gives us a clue when he says... About this saltiness. What is our distinctive? Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. So there's a graciousness and a seasoning of salt in how we deal with the world, how we deal with outsiders, and how we treat each other. Jesus said this in another place salt is good but if it loses its saltiness how can you make it salty again well Jesus what are you talking about here's what he says he describes it have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another that is not the peace that says there's no conflict that doesn't it's not the peace that's a shallow false peace it's a peace that it's a peace that recognizes there's disagreement there's conflict but we learn to fight lovingly, and we're just not very good at that, and we've, we've really enjoyed our homestays, and the last homestay we had, we just returned to Germany on Wednesday, several times in front of us with her friends there, she said to me, you guys don't fight, she was talking about Kathleen and me, so I said, oh, I said, oh, no, we fight. I I said, but uh, I had to explore what they meant. They said, no, you don't. We have never seen you fight. And and, and it really impacted. And they mentioned it several times with their friends there. So I started thinking about this salty business. And I insisted that we do sometimes, Kathleen and I have disagreements. We argue. But what they were saying is you, you don't do that kind of toxic fighting that's emotive and destructive where you give each other the silent treatment and stonewall and walk away in in hostility. And of course, sometimes you need time to work through things. So I thought I'd invite Kathleen up because I think one of the most important things about this is emotionally healthy relationships. And we went through this as as a church a year ago and now she with her home group are going through it again. And uh, she's come here to uh, just share a little of her story. Is that okay?
0: So, so far I still have hair, (laughs) even though I've been pulling it out piece by piece recently. So, as we know, uh, some of us uh, that had the privilege of being involved with emotional healthy relationships, Workshops, the authors Pete and Jerry Cazero um, describe mature conflict resolution as fighting cleanly, as opposed to fighting dirty. And if you look on page 131, it's pretty graphic. Uh, however, when you actually look at it, you can sometimes. I there's my special notes that I've worked very hard <laughs> over you can sometimes find uh, and identify, like myself, that there are certain tactics that you tend to use. So I'll give you a quick list. Uh, Gordy mentioned silent treatment, lecturing. This is with people that you feel you are having conflicts with. This is one of my blaming, condescension. I don't I'll I'll tell you the ones I tend to do mostly in a minute, then you'll be really happy to know. (laughs) Um, Threatening gestures. Wow. Name-calling, criticizing, sarcasm, complaining, walking away, avoiding, shouting, using always and never, which I've done. Uh, Anger that can lead to rage, passive-aggressive behavior. Lying, that doesn't mean lying down on your bed. It means actually lying, uh, telling non-truths. Hitting, violence, and showing contempt. So you think that these are, Pete and Jerry say, that these are quite common, actually, in their research amongst Christians, even mature Christians, so-called mature Christians, walking with the Lord for 30, 40 years, such as myself, of course. (laughs) So to illustrate that... um, what I've been through, this is something I've been through in the last f- months, actually. So this, the specific illustration is Gordy has been committed on a regular basis every week to going on outings with others on on Saturday afternoon. As most of you know, maybe you don't, I've been doing a lot of teaching ESL with a lot of middle school and high school kids and usually I've been teaching Saturday mornings and so when I Get home. It's like one or two, and and very often he wants to go out earlier to catch the sun. And I realize even when I can come home, I'm tired, and I've been working with youth already, and I don't really want to go out on another outing. So, um, one of the love languages, and it just recently this morning, I was so, it was so tender as I was I was thinking about this and praying into it. I used to go on outings all the time when I was a child with my dad. I just loved to go out with my dad. Uh, Bird watching, go to visit farmers, go on picnics, go horseback riding. My dad had horses. And I just loved being in the garden with him, as opposed to my sister would tend to be with my mom, knitting and sewing and baking. And I I did a little bit of that, but I was an outdoor girl. So... Nature's always been one of my primary love languages. So when Gordy goes out and I'm not part of it, I'm starting to deal, over the weeks and months, I'm dealing with feelings like exclusion, marginalization, and the, the big one, less preferred. I'm feeling very less preferred. Do you know what that word means? It means somebody else, yeah. What do you say it again, Will? Second best. So now you know how I was feeling. <laughs> okay, so my tendency was to fight dirty. So I'm talking to my husband, I'm blaming him, I'm criticizing, I'm complaining, and I'm using never and always. You always take others out on outdoor outings you never plan to take me... How come you guys are laughing? <laughs> it's not. It's a very sad situation. You never take me on an outdoor outing. You always plan these incredible excursions with other people. That didn't seem to work. He just kind of processed it and was feeling accused. And, um, of course, he's vulnerable to never measuring up. So he's feeling like he's not measuring up at all. So it, it wasn't working. So then, of course... Thanks to Elaine, thanks to Elaine, and Scott and Kim, and, and then there's others that are helping me in, in our home group, including um, Rick and Sherry, who's here today. Where are you, Sherry? Yay, Sherry! So we just so happen to be going into this chapter on fighting cleanly this week, fresh off the press. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm d- fighting dirty. I'm getting convicted. I'm fighting dirty. I'm blaming, I'm complaining, I'm accusing, and I'm not doing well. So then I just flip the page and it says how to do a clean fight. State the problem. I notice, Gordy, that you take other people out on Saturdays for many outdoor excursions in nature. Second step. I value, I value an adult relationship with you, especially a husband and wife relationship with you. So I was doing this in the car. I actually said, okay, can we try this again? I, I want, And then I'm like, I think I've been fighting dirty. So I'm trying this again, right? Just recently. I value a really special relationship with you as my husband, my special friend, I think it's my special friend. And... I would really value a committed time in the outdoors with you, just you and me. See, he's nodding, right? And he was nodding. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting excited. And so then the third step, would you be willing to commit yourself? Now, I I know you think this is like. You think this is like, oh, come on, you guys, you have to really, yes, you really have to do this. So would you be willing to commit yourself to me personally? Because we do things together, like we go out for breakfast dates, we do book reading, we pray, and sometimes you'll come for a swim with me, which is what I love to do. But for some reason, this outdoor thing was really something that I was feeling really sad about. Elaine's naughty. Thank you, Eileen. So I said, Would you be willing to commit one time a week just with me? Now I'm saying this, I'm getting excited because you guys are all hearing it now. And he's already said, Yes. And we've already had one. And it was a great adventure. It was just last week. And that meant the world to me. But I still love to be with other people. But it was really important that we could do this together. So, The teaching that they give you is state the problem, but not in any kind of um, aggressive manner of blaming or accusing, right? State the problem. I notice that you do such and such. This makes me feel such and such, right? State why the issue is important to you. I value this. So it's a positive statement instead of a negative statement. And... Then negotiate. If you can't get it after two or three times, you have to sort of, am I being aggressive? Or you have to keep doing it. And Are you willing to commit partially or entirely? Or sometimes you you negotiate. You negotiate your agreement. And then they say to write it out and visit that agreement every two weeks. Does that sound like a good skill? So this is a skill that will keep you from going bald. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so uh, we've been married 42 years, and you know your life can take a turn, and all of a sudden there's new new issues. And what happens is, what Kathleen, what you'll notice is that there was two at least two stories going on there, wasn't there? There was the story of of, of our working out a, a special outing and how we do that, but there was also the story with her dad, right? That was going on, and often with conflict, there's, there's two or three different stories, so watch for those layers as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks, love, for sharing. So, and pray for us. Ah. So, um, my monitor isn't working anymore here, but I just wanted to quote this. I love this. This came out of the Hundred Years' War where Millions of Protestants and Catholics had killed each other. A guy came up with a wise statement: "In essentials, unity; in non-essentials, freedom; and in all things, love." So if you're, you know, even if you even if you disagree on essentials, because there's big disagreements sometimes in the church about what's essential for our faith and what we believe. But even that, love. Okay, I don't agree with that, but I'll. I'm not going to hate you. I'm going to pray for you and love you, right? Um, You know, if somebody becomes your theological enemy, what did Jesus say to do to your enemies? (laughs) He said to love them. Pray for them. So you can't get off the hook. I'm sorry. All right. So, conclusion. We are invited to follow Jesus into the tension of distinctiveness and engagement as a vital step in following God, love for God, and others. And I realize I just uploaded the wrong PowerPoint because I actually changed... uh, changed... um, the ending here. Describe a time in your story when you felt a tension between the call to be faithful yet present and how did you respond? And maybe I could ask ask this question. Think of a time in your life where you felt a tension between being right and being good. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's important to get the right thing right. But, I believe that it's encapsulated in goodness and you can be right but so wrong we know that we live in a world where you just you got the right you might have the right theology but you got the right the wrong spirit right so how do we how do we deal with that tension Um, and what are the fears like there's fears that happen when when I'm dealing with a tension between being good and being right sometimes there's fear I deal with but you know why? Because I don't want to be I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to disappoint God. I don't I don't want to disappoint my church or my family or those who love me. I, that's important to me. I'm a bit of a pleaser. It's a weak side that I have. That's part of my pastoral thing I think. But I still have to I have to follow Jesus in this. I have to follow. He's my shepherd, right? So what are the fears? That you deal with in this, so Rose, come up and give that word that you had Rose came in with a word this morning, actually yesterday, and we 're going to pray together wow it's going to be a while this one no, 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 just just, a just kidding, just kidding
2: so um, i I went to Costco and uh, I saw something and I went. <gasps> I've wanted to do that for 20 years. So what I wanted to do, um, this is just how God speaks to me. Sometimes there's circumstances or sometimes you see a bulletin board or a poster or magazine and something jumps out at you. So at the moment, I was just going on, oh, I want to do this. So I had this vision 20 years ago. I had this thought that I wanted to take all of my recipes that people give to you on pieces of paper, that you pull out of magazines, that you print offline, and I wanted to put them in little plastic sleeves. Well, the cost was too great because I probably have like more than 500 recipes. I cook a lot. And so for 20 years, I've been sitting on that idea, and I organized them a little bit, but I found that I had this huge pile of papers, and I had several things printed a few times because I couldn't find what I wanted. And so when I went to Costco, 225 for $9. Suddenly, the cost is not so great. I snatched two boxes off the shelf because I don't want to run out, and I have spent the last four days organizing recipes. And so I now have Oh, see, there's one paper didn't make it in yet. I have four binders. <laughs> I know. So if you ever get to come to my house, you know, you know why. Okay. So I just felt like when I was putting this together, God said to me that this is a corporate word. We get personal words, we get words for friends, and we get corporate words. This is a corporate word. This is for everyone. A fellow like God said that people have been holding dreams and visions for them, their family, their future, for 20 years. You've been holding something, and you haven't seen it come to fruition. The cost at the time was too high. And God is saying, now's the time. That the cost is not so great anymore. That you have, he is bringing about a way to organize That vision that you've been holding. That dream that you have. And God is saying, watch me do this. Watch for that moment. I'm going to show you. That's it. You're going to know that I know that I know. That knowing part of you that you can't explain. Something will leap inside of you and you'll go, that's it. And God is going to show you how to bring that thing you've been carrying for 20 years to fruition. So I I feel like right now God wants me to pray into that. So uh, just raise your hand, close your eyes, raise your hand if you want to receive. So Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, that which people are carrying that you would walk with them through that you've been with them through this whole time carrying that with them and Father I pray you open their eyes open their ears open their spirit to see that which you have called into being that there is a God time moment that you are bringing right now that you are bringing the plastic sleeves the organizational piece that they need for this vision to come to fruition I pray right now that all things be moved out of the way in Jesus' name, that you would move in power and might right now in their lives and over the weeks to come to bring these visions, these hopes, these dreams to fruition. And we will be able to stand here and say, God is good. And by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb, we are overcomers. And we are going to be able to say, look what God did. So I thank you, Father. You're opening our eyes. You're opening our ears. You're opening our spirit. You're putting a uh, walk into our steps. You're showing us what to do. Help us to watch and to listen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Rose. So, uh, yeah, and we felt uh, that Romans passage. Um, in fact, why don't, why don't we stand together? Um, maybe I can just bless you with this. If you'd like some more prayer into that or to some of these things that have come up today, just um, feel free to come. Uh, Some of us are here to pray with you or just pray with somebody next to you. Um, But the Romans passage says um, uh, our suffering produces character and our character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. And so I just hear the Lord saying hope uh, there's some of you struggling with disappointment today. And uh, w- another picture we had when we were praying was Rose tried to throw a ball into the shelf to put it back and it bounced out of the... It was a good shot, really, but it bounced. And uh, came back out again. And we just feel like some of you uh, have taken a fall. And, the, and there's uh, that hope is going to get put some air in that and, and you're going to bounce back. So just hang in there. There's, we all have these bad days, right? We all have these dark times. Even Jesus said, now is the time of the power of darkness. That's what he said. What did he say? It's a bad day. <laughs> Even Jesus had bad days, right? And, uh, but that's okay. That's part of your story. And God hasn't given up. And So hope does not disappoint because, and this is the because I love, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. By the Holy Spirit, you are not alone. I will not leave you orphans. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. I have, we- I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child with his mother is my soul within me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit who fills you with the love of God, cause you to overflow and abound in hope this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Happy Epiphany.